3: I have you loud and clear. <laughs>
4: hello. Hello. hello, hello, hello. Welcome.
3: <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, space,
4: time, the brain, life, the universe.
3: On the programme this week, the artificial spider silk being made in the laboratory and a drug that stops Zika virus infecting a developing baby. Plus, our marine month continues and brings us face-to-face with one of the deadliest animals on Earth. Hello, I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by (laughs) UKfast.co.uk And to kick us off this week, some good news about Zika virus. Women who contract Zika when they're pregnant are at risk of the infection spreading to the baby's brain and causing the condition microcephaly, a small head. Recent predictions suggest that more than a million pregnant women might be at risk of infection across the Americas in the next few years. But now, scientists have discovered that a drug that's already licensed for use in pregnancy can actually block the spread of Zika virus from a mother's bloodstream into her developing baby. It actually stops the virus from getting into the placenta that links the baby to its mother. From Washington University in St. Louis, Indira Mysorica.
1: Normally the placenta is a is a fantastic barrier. You know, for the most part babies are born fine, normal and And we found that this virus, the reason it was causing such terrible uh, problems in, in the babies, was because it was infecting the placenta, and then from there directly it could go into into the baby 's circulation and affect the baby 's brain. Knowing this, we started looking into how is it that the virus is able to do that. And there is this essentially a garbage recycling system that's found in, in the placenta, as in other cells. And this system's important, you know, just housekeeping, cleaning, cleaning up of the cell and taking care of the bad guys or, or anything that's broken. And we found that the virus was essentially taking advantage of the system. And so that led us to then looking at drugs that could block the system and maybe that way block the ability of Zika to infect the baby.
3: So can we unpack this slightly then? So explain a bit more about what this garbage system is that the virus is exploiting and how.
1: Yes, pretty much every cell in our body, all different kinds of cells, have this garbage recycling system. And again, this is there to essentially protect us. But many, many viruses and bacteria have developed ways to hijack the system. And we turned out that Zika is no exception. It actually, is, you know, a little bit counterintuitive, but it ramps up this garbage recycling system because we think it needs the end products of the cleanup and is able to use it to grow. And so then we found this drug, which happens to be used as an anti-malarial, hydroxychloroquine. And this drug has been known to block this recycling system. So we treated our animals that had been infected with the virus, our pregnant animals, uh, with this drug, and found that within a course of a few days, uh, it was completely able to block virus ability to grow in the placenta and was able to block any effects on the fetus.
3: So you take these pregnant, in this case, correct. you're doing experimental animals, you administer this anti drug, hydroxychloroquine. This correct. we know, because people have studied this for years, we know it inhibits this garbage recycling system in cells. And when correct. it's doing that... The virus cannot penetrate through the placenta. It stops it infecting the placenta, and that's its relay station into the baby. So the baby is indirectly protected.
1: That is correct.
3: Is it safe in pregnancy, though? Because many many people, when when they're pregnant, they're very worried about taking drugs for that's obvious correct. reasons. So, it... is this drug safe?
1: Yeah, it has been shown to be safe in pregnancy. It has in the United States. It's been FDA approved, and obviously, it's uh, a antimalarial. It's used all over the world. And Additionally, this drug is used to treat uh, pregnant women who have lupus and uh, the baby followed and there doesn't seem to be any adverse consequences to the baby as far as we know.
3: How long is the window period? And by that I mean after an individual contracts Zika infection. How long have you got to intervene with this therapy before it potentially can leapfrog into the baby via the placenta?
1: Excellent question. We don't have all the answers yet. But from our studies, we can say that if we treat the animals, infected animals, almost immediately or a day after the infection, we're able to block the infection.
3: Because one of the problems with Zika is that more than 80% of people who catch it have no symptoms whatsoever. So if we relied on people reporting, I might have been exposed then we're going to miss the vast majority of cases. So we would probably have to just encourage people at risk of infection to take this throughout their pregnancy, wouldn't we?
1: That is correct. And that's the one thing that we would definitely have to test because even though hydroxychloroquine has been shown to be safe, even in the first trimester of pregnancy, there have been no studies that show what happens if one takes hydroxychloroquine throughout the course of one's pregnancy.
3: Nevertheless, it's still a very encouraging finding, isn't it? That's Indira Mysorica, and her study has just come out in the Journal of Experimental Medicine. Now, for its weight, spider silk is one of nature's strongest materials, and its elasticity and energy absorbing properties make it a very attractive prospect for materials scientists. But our current ways of making artificial silk need very high temperatures and toxic chemicals. At least, they did because now a team of real-life spider at Cambridge University, this time wearing lab coats rather than spandex, have invented a new, greener, cleaner form of spider silk. Darshur Shah spun some for Georgia Mills.
5: There's a fibre.
6: Here's a fibre here. Oh my God, I can barely see it. <laughs> Are you sure there's anything there? It's
5: six uh, micrometers in diameter. Uh, typical human hair is 80 micrometers in diameter, so it's really, really fine.
6: Oh, wow. And
5: that is why we need to convert it into yarns so that they are usable in engineering applications.
6: This minuscule thread that I'm trying to look at is the new, greener way of mimicking spider silk. The new method, which doesn't require extreme heats or toxic chemicals, uses a hydrogel, which is 98% water and 2% silica and cellulose. Uchao O, a co-lead and PhD student at the Department of Chemistry, told me where they got the idea.
7: Well, if you look at the way of spider produce spider silks the content inside the gland contains lots of proteins these proteins have amorphous domains and crystalline domain which are soft and hard and so this is what we're trying to reproduce
6: so you looked at how they do it there's there's hard stuff in there there's soft stuff in there and it's all mixed together and you thought let's do it the same way and that's how you came up with your uh, recipe i suppose
7: yeah just imagine you go to the restaurant and you order uh, some spaghetti. The spaghetti are the soft polymers, while the meatballs are the hard silicon spheres. So when they mix together and there is some interaction between these meatballs and the spaghetti, in that case, the extension of the material can be extended into very large extent. And that's why this material can be pulled into a fiber with very high aspect ratio.
6: This aspect ratio refers to the relationship between width and height, i.e. these threads can get very, very long and thin. And I wanted to see how this liquid hydrogel was spun into a thread. Can I have a look at your your machine? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Do we have to run through the rain to get there?
5: Yes, there are some bits through the rain.
6: Okay, I will protect my microphone with my scarf. (laughs)
5: So we are just about to run a sample of the hydrogel and show you how the fiber forms from a reservoir of the soupy material the hydrogel which is 98 percent water and we can pull a fiber from it up to around 250 millimeters in length
6: oh, wow so the machine itself um it's a uh, two little crocodile clips <laughs> stuck onto um these sort of pillars reaching towards each other and I'm assuming that is it's between these that the the fibre will form. So we've got a tiny little blob of it it just looks a bit like clear glue and now the magic happens. Here we go. go. It's um, stretched out about um, 7 centimetres there. It was getting very very thin but the blobs of glue were kind of stretching out to form this long fiber is that how it's done then
5: Yeah. so basically it draws or pulls out material from the reservoir and eventually because the aspect ratio becomes very large water starts to evaporate and you're left with an entirely fibrous material based on modified silica and modified cellulose
6: You've got a greener way of doing it, but isn't the most green way just to get spiders to do it? Why can't we just have a room full of spiders making silk for us?
5: First of all, spiders are cannibalistic in nature. So what we find is that if you have many of them in a very small space, they will start eating each other up or protecting their own territory. And also milking silk from spiders is quite a difficult task on its own.
6: And finally, have you compared this in, in strength and resilience to the traditionally made spider web?
5: Yes, we have. So we have compared it to many other technical fibers, and we find that the damping capacity of our fiber, which is the uh, ability of the material to absorb energy, exceeds that of natural silks. So the applications of these supramolecular fibers would probably be in technical textiles, particularly where energy absorption is important, such as in blast-proof, shrapnel-resistant military clothing, sailcloth for sailboats, fabrics for parachutes and air balloons, protective gears and devices, such as helmets for cyclists and skateboarders, and finally as sensors because we can alter the chemistry by introducing tiny amounts of other materials and we can use these fibres for sensing applications and help monitoring and this is an important field of engineering to ensure safety, reliability and functionality of a structure.
3: There's no mention of raincoats there though, was there? Because it really sounded in that piece like they needed one. That was the real life spider man Darshil Shah and Uchawu speaking with Georgia Mills and their work was published in PNAS. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and on the way, the staircase that recycles the energy that you expend when you use it, and also how Australian researchers are using drones to smell a whale's breath. Stay with us to find out why. First, though, it's time for this week's Down to Earth, where we take a look at the tech that was intended for space that since found a new home back down here on Earth. And this week, physicist Stuart Higgins is getting into his DIY.
8: What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? Hi, I'm Dr Stuart Higgins and welcome to this episode of Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, the mini-series that explores how technology developed for space is also used back down on Earth. This episode, how developing an astronaut's drill to dig holes in the moon, helped lead to the development of cordless vacuums. In 1968, NASA launched the first of the Apollo program missions to the Moon. As well as the ultimate goal of being the first to put humans on the Moon, the Apollo program was also used to conduct scientific research. This included drilling holes into the Moon to remove samples for testing back on Earth. The six Apollo flights that landed on the Moon returned 382 kilograms of lunar material, including core samples. These samples reveal much about the composition and origin of the moon, including that the moon may have once had its own magnetic field. In order to get samples deeper from the moon's surface, the Apollo astronauts needed a drill. And just like using a vacuum cleaner or a hedge cutter down on Earth, the astronauts didn't want to have to run long power extension leads across the moon back to their lunar landing module. So instead, NASA looked into developing a cordless battery-powered lunar drill. They ended up working together with Black & Decker, a power tools manufacturer, who in the early 1960s had released the first cordless electric drill and a cordless hedge trimmer. Travelling as far as the moon takes a lot of energy, so NASA was keen to minimise the mass it needed to transport. Batteries were heavy and bulky. To minimise the number required, an efficient electric motor was needed in order to cut down the power demands. Engineers from Black & Decker developed a computer programs to optimize the electric motor's design, reducing the energy needed. The end result was a drill that could operate for about forty minutes from its 3.3 kilogram power supply. Granted, that's still pretty heavy, but not bad considering the amount of energy needed to drill into rock and sand. This drill subsequently went to the moon on the Apollo missions and was used to bring back core samples to Earth and Black and Decker went on to use the skills and expertise they developed to create products such as the cordless vacuum cleaner, which has been sucking up crumbs ever since. Incidentally, NASA even included a troubleshooting guide in the manual for their lunar drill. Entry number one for the drill not working? Try charging or replacing the batteries. Some things never change. That was Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, and join me again soon to learn about more space technology that's changing lives back on Earth.
3: Thank you, Stuart. And next time, Stuart will be getting into greenhouse gases when carbon dioxide filters come down to Earth. As we get older, climbing stairs can become more challenging, and installing a lift isn't always practical or affordable. Now, scientists in the US have come up with a set of steps that you can retrofit over your existing staircase and which store the energy you expend when you descend and then give you a helpful leg up again when you go back up. Katie Haler got a spring in her step, hearing how it works from Lena Ting.
9: So we start at the top of the stairs, and each of the treads move up and down just the height of one stair. And when you step down, the stair starts at the same height as the floor that you're on. And as it accepts your weight, it slowly lowers, stretching some springs. So it cushions your descent of the stairs and actually reduces the amount of work that your muscles need to do and actually makes it quite uh, soft and pleasant to to go down. So the energy is tra-
10: being stored in the in the spring, right?
9: That's right. So you're using your own power to stretch the springs. When the tread lowers and by one stair height, then it gets locked in, and so now we've locked in that energy into a stretched spring. And you go down a series of stairs, and the stair treads get locked. When you turn around and you want to go back up the stairs. Now the energy is stored in each step, and we have some simple pressure sensors on each tread that senses when you put down one foot, and when you put the next foot on the higher tread, it releases the back tread, Ah. and that gives your back leg a little push up.
10: Okay, so the energy is being stored on the way down, and it's being used on the way up to give you a little boost just to, to help you get back up the stairs.
9: That's right and we found that that boost to the what we call the trailing leg reduces the amount of work done at the knee of the leading leg by about 37%.
10: Okay, so that's the energy being saved in a sense I guess by going up the stairs, but what about going down the stairs? Does it have any benefit there?
9: What was surprising is that the amount of work going down which is generally used to break the body to keep us from falling against the pull of gravity also decreased by about 27% in the ankle. So it's energy that's dissipated, and the stairs work on the principle by helping you do the braking so you use less energy, but then we also store that energy so that it can be used going back up. Ultimately, why is this invention important? Well, I think we all know people who have difficulty walking up the, down the stairs, either because they're aging or even have a temporary injury, uh, such as knee surgery. And these allow people to climb existing stairs that are very difficult to retrofit, or you might not want to retrofit them. And it also allows people to take advantage of the mobility that they have. So if you're able to partially walk up and down the stairs... Then these can keep people active, independent, and living in their own homes. So it sounds like these stairs would give people who, you know, can do a bit of exercise that freedom
10: still to move around and not be confined to, like you said, a, a lift chair or something.
9: Participating in going up and down the stairs is very important for maintaining the mobility that somebody has. If they were to start using the chair lift, then because our mobility is use it or lose it, then their motor ability may in fact degrade faster. It's extremely important that we keep active and maintain independence as uh, people age.
3: Well said. Lena Ting there from Georgia Tech and she was speaking with Katie Haler. The research was published in the journal PLOS One. And now our resident film enthusiast Georgia Mills is heading for the big screen. <laughs> She's been looking at how well the science of one recent release holds up.
6: War for the Planet of the Apes is the third film in the reboot of the 1968 classic. It's a sci-fi, but how accurate is the sci? Could apes really rise up, start talking, go to war with humanity? At a screening of the film, I found some people who were able to help. Some primate experts who could tell me just how well the movies ape the apes.
11: Uh, So I'm Lauren Brent. I'm a behavioural ecologist at the University of Exeter. And I'm really interested in societies and how they're structured and how individuals relate to each other in those societies. And there are many ways that the films are quite accurate in that. So chimps are a patriarchy. There's a dominant male who gets most of the resources. He leads groups. Everyone needs to submit to him, and that's really borne out in the films. Um, And also they're highly competitive, both within their group and also with out-group members. So in this case, those are humans, but if we imagine in the wild, it would be a rival chimp group that bordered their territory. There were a few things that aren't what chimps do so they're not monogamous so you wouldn't have a single female partner where you had all your children with her um but there are lots of reasons why what they've portrayed in the films are are fairly spot on in terms of chimp society
6: and let's focus on speech a bit because in the films they they do speak the apes and they also sign so are these things we think apes can do or could ever do or is it completely in the realms of sci-fi
11: I think it's, a lot of it's in the realms of sci-fi in terms of the level of intentionality in the, in the communication. Signing certainly is something you can train an ape to do, but the extent to which they then apply syntax and create sentences, and, and that's getting a little bit into the realms of science fiction. And certainly the vocalisations... Apes are limited in in the sounds that they can make for a variety of reasons. So the types of sounds they were making, basically English speech, is something that current apes that exist for a whole host of reasons,
12: yeah, probably can't do. I'm Zanna Clay. I'm a comparative psychologist at Durham University in the UK. In terms of their vocalisations, the naturalistic data suggests that actually, largely, they lack a lot of the skills in terms of, learning new vocalizations and intentional signaling that humans have to to use for language. But actually captive apes, and there's some interesting data suggesting that captive apes actually are able to use new vocalizations. Um, They're not necessarily using the vocal tract, but they're using blowing air through the, the throat and so on. They can produce novel sounds, so it's not completely out of the realm of science fiction. It could just take one or two, a genetic mutation, that could actually create more flexibility than we see. So these weird um, sounds that captive apes make, they seem to be able to control those. And if they could speak, they really would. Like, they want to communicate, they want to ask for food and so on. The best they can do is go... So there is an intention there, but they're lacking the, the sort of the, the machinery. So a big part of this
6: film is motion capture, and the actors are acting like apes. So say um, I'm Andy Circus asking you for advice on how to look like an ape. What advice would you give? How do you how do you match like an ape?
12: Yeah, I spend a lot of time watching individual apes. I mean, a lot of it's postural. So there's a lot of. I mean, you can really ape an ape by using the right body movements. It's hard to ape an ape in a bipedal posture because mostly really quintessential mannerisms you see in apes is how they use their body physically um, on the ground. There's also some specific sort of facial expressions that apes show, um, not all of which map directly onto what we see in humans. So it's hard for these actors to appreciate the differences between certain emotional expressions or facial expressions that you see in great apes like chimpanzees. Um, but there's some really interesting crossovers, and then I think also the use of like eye gaze and an attentiveness is a bit different in apes. So I think it's in, important to look at how they respond to others. Chimps are easier to imitate, like vocally, than like gorillas, orangutans, and bonobos.
6: Give me say. your best chimp. Um. <laughs> Right, it's fantastic. Do you... I would do a
12: full one, but I'm not going to. Do you do the,
6: um, the chest beat of I'm a? I'm not going
12: to because that would be really loud. And uh, I mean, maybe if I'd had another glass, all another glass do, but... of wine. Oh, yeah. I can also do food calls. So Ooh, like yeah. <laughs> that's like a happy food call of a chimp. Um, and a laugh? I could do a laugh. Yeah. And they genuinely do that when they're finding something funny. Yeah, yeah. That is really what they sound like. Sounds a bit of a demonic laugh, but that's (laughs) what they do.
6: So we can breathe a sigh of relief. While chimpanzees enjoy a fight or two, we're not in danger of smack talking or any kind of military organisation. But they might just enjoy a laugh at our expense.
3: Georgia Mills was aping apes with Xana Clay from the University of Durham and Lauren Brent from the University of Exeter. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And this is actually the third programme in a series of four where we've been looking at the largest habitat on Earth, and that's the ocean. Last week we were swimming with the biggest fish in the sea and investigating glowing corals. Well now we're heading for the open ocean and on the way we're going to hear how Australian scientists are using drones to give whales a health check and the killer that's lurking in the deep.
2: Its sting is worse than anything Hollywood has dared to imagine. Make no mistake this tiny beast is a killer. The sting itself is often painless and leaves no mark. Half of the victims don't even know they've been stung.
3: Sounds awful doesn't it? We'll find out what it is later on in the programme. First though Cambridge University marine scientist Kate Feller is here with me and uh, Kate it must be a wonderful thing to have one of the world's largest laboratories if not the largest laboratory at your disposal in the form of the oceans.
13: Uh, Yeah no the ocean is an incredible place to study uh, particularly because we have so many questions. 70% of the earth is covered by the ocean and yet we have only explored about 5% of it. So there's a lot left to discover.
3: One statistic I saw was that we know more about the surface of Mars than we probably do about the sea floor or or what's going on in (laughs) in our biggest habitat.
13: Uh, yeah, we. Um, I mean, we. There's certainly a lot of wonderful um, research that's been done. I am a visual scientist, and the ocean is a fantastic natural laboratory for visual studies because of the predictive way that light behaves underwater. It's pretty unpredictable in, in air, and so underwater, you can. It varies very predictably with depth. Um, there's also other physical properties that make it a really ideal place to conduct experiments. Just by moving around to different niches within the ocean.
3: You've said it's a wonderful place to work on vision. So what's the most sort of out there amazing thing about underwater vision that you've come across then in your research?
13: Oh, man, there's so many amazing specialisations. Actually, we were just talking earlier about the dragonfish that lives in the deep sea that uh, uses uh, these red bioluminescent headlights in order to look around that no one else can see because there's no red light in the deep sea. Uh, And that's a pretty wild one.
3: Why can no one else see it then?
13: Back to the physics of light underwater, uh, the colours of light get uh, fastly absorbed as you go- increase with depth. So red light is almost immediately absorbed. So just a few meters down and everything looks a lot bluer or greener. And light actually only penetrates the surface down to about a thousand meters maximum. Uh, but uh, like photosynthesis ends at 200 meters.
3: So you've got these fish living way down beyond that. Mm-hmm. They're producing red light, which wouldn't naturally be at that depth and what Correct. the other animals that naturally live there don't see red because yes. they live so deep so, yes. by, so tr- by producing red light it's able to then spotlight these animals they can't see that they're being put in, in a huge searchlight
13: exactly so these fish have evolved eyes that can detect red light but no one else around them can so they're just kind of secretly going around being like haha I see you
3: and what do they do with them do they use them to catch prey or do they yeah, use yeah, them to it's, talk it's to each for... other like a, like a morse code that no one else can see
13: oh, I don't think we have had the ability to study their behaviour that Finally, So definitely food, maybe (laughs) behaviour.
3: Maybe food for thought. Kate's with me through the programme. Thank you, Kate. And she'll be popping up throughout to offer her insights as a marine scientist. But before we get on to the really big stuff, we're going to go very, very small because Katie Haler has been hearing from Michael Cuncliffe. He's at the University of Plymouth. And he was telling her why our lives ultimately depend on some of the smallest life forms on Earth.
0: When you first look at seawater, it's this, you know, translucent liquid. Um, If you're lucky, you might see a fish, you might see a whale. But actually within that seawater are a huge number of marine microbes. You're talking about 10 million viruses, a million bacteria, a thousand microbial eukaryotes that we call protists. And that literally is in one drop in the ocean.
10: These billions of microbes together are known as the ocean microbiome. And this is a concept we're quite familiar with. The microbes both on and inside us make up our own unique human microbiome.
0: So particularly the microbes that are in our gut, they help us to digest food. And we wouldn't really be able to get the same nutritional value from food that we would without those gut microbes. Microbes in the ocean are sort of similar. There's lots of them, they're diverse, and they all have really important functions. And it's those functions that really help the ocean to work
10: what are they actually doing in the water? According to Michael, both the ocean and us would be pretty stuffed without them.
0: Collectively, we could consider the marine microbes to be environmental chemists. They're performing all of the chemical reactions that are needed to sustain the chemistry of the ocean and the chemistry of our atmospheres. Microalgae, phytoplankton, photosynthesizers in the same way that plants and trees are on the dry land. And the scale that this happens is huge. So basically half of the global photosynthesis is performed by these phytoplankton. So that means half of the oxygen that we breathe comes from these little unicellular plants that live in surface water. But the other big functional role that marine microbes have is this base of the marine food chain. All of the larger organisms that live in the sea rely either directly or indirectly on microbes.
10: As microbes in the ocean are so fundamental to the life in the seas, understanding the effects that humans might be having on these tiny creatures is a big business.
0: Thinking about change and the impact that humans have on the marine environment... There's evidence that actually microbes can respond to that and actually help to mitigate the impact that we have.
10: So they're cleaning up our mess, essentially.
0: Yeah, to a certain extent. There's a really brilliant example of that, and that was the Deepwater Horizon oil spill that occurred in the Gulf of Mexico. Absolute horrendous environmental disaster. All this oil was produced and it had a devastating effect on the ecosystems in that area. But one of the really interesting things that happened was immediately after the oil spill, microbes increased in abundance. There were specialists in degrading oil. And they played a major role in in reducing the impact um, that the oil pollution had.
10: And what about plastic? Because plastic seems to be a real problem in the oceans.
0: This is a holy grail, really, at the moment in marine microbiology. If you put plastic in seawater very, very quickly, microbes colonise plastic. And work's been done at these different locations around the planet, looking at different types of plastic, showing that different sorts of microbes grow on them. So there's a huge research effort at the moment to try and see if any of these marine microbes are actually able to degrade plastic. And if they are, we could maybe look at the enzyme systems that they use and see if we could exploit that to try and deal with this pollution problem.
10: There's so much we don't know about this mysterious environment under the waves. Perhaps ocean microbes could hold the key to a treasure chest of untapped scientific potential. And scientists are scouring the seas in search of the next novel compound a process known as bioprospecting.
0: There's a whole area of marine microbiology now where people are looking at the functional roles that microbes have and saying, well, actually, can we bring them into the lab? Um, Can we bring them into industry? Can we bring them into biotechnology? And can we actually use them to our, our advantage? One of the really exciting areas is basically looking at marine microbes as a sort of antimicrobial compounds. So I'm sure everyone's familiar with the major problems that we have at the moment with microorganisms that cause disease, that are resistant to antibiotics, and the problems that people have, especially when they're in hospital. There's a real demand now to try and deal with that. And scientists are looking at microbes that live in the ocean and seeing if they have any solutions. So are there any of these organisms producing antimicrobial compounds? One of my colleagues at the University of Plymouth is looking at marine sponges and they're trying to identify are there any antimicrobial producing microbes in marine sponges?
3: Incredible stuff, isn't it? So the next antibiotic could well be sitting there out in the ocean right now. That was Michael Cuncliffe from the University of Plymouth. He was speaking with Katie Hayler. Marine scientist Kate Feller is with me. It was striking to me, Kate, one of the points that Michael made there was that of every breath we take, about half that oxygen has come out of the
13: ocean. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The ocean's pretty busy. (laughs) Indeed. But given
3: that, and given our therefore dependence on the viability of that system... What might climate change mean to those organisms that are those marine plants, tiny plants that are capturing sunlight, capturing CO2, releasing oxygen, and we're breathing it?
13: Well, so the ocean is really good at taking the CO2 out of the air. And then actually the movement of the animals that are then interacting with the phytoplankton that are are using that CO2, uh, their movement pumps these elements into the ocean And uh, there's actually a bit of concern about uh, with the increasing temperatures that you end up, the ocean ends up getting more stratified or there end up being more layers. And so then animals won't move as much in the ocean. And
3: that could there affect what, the efficiency of this ability to to draw down carbon dioxide and chuck out oxygen. Mm -hmm. So we could end up in a negative feedback loop then. Yeah. bit dismal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, going up a gear in terms of size, you actually study for your research, not the microbes so much that Michael was talking about, but actually bigger things. These are called zooplankton. They're small creatures. They're We we traditionally call them plankton, but these are actually little animals, aren't they? And one of the things that they actually do is to move up and down Mm -hmm. in the water, what we call the water column. So tell us about that.
13: Yeah, so it's called a deal or daily vertical migration, and it is the largest migration that happens on the planet. It happens every day, and it's maybe only countered by human commuters as far as biomass.
3: Well, well, go on then. Put some numbers on it. What's happening, who's moving, and how far are they travelling?
13: So it is a lot of stuff is moving. So you've got living at the surface uh, in the, that top 200 meters are your phytoplankton that's kind of like the grass that all of your, your herbivores are going to be eating and so uh, the tiny um, zooplankton like copepods uh, like plankton from Spongebob Squarepants, they want to eat this phytoplankton. However, there's a lot of bigger things that want to eat them and they use vision in order to locate these these copepods and so as a way to avoid being eaten by a visual predator, they go down to where it's darker at greater depth in order to avoid these predators. And they do that during the day. And then at night, they come up to feed. And so it, it helps them eat while not being eaten.
3: How far do they travel? When you say they go down, are we talking hundreds of meters that these little animals might move up and down?
13: Yeah, so that's interesting. So the the, the really little ones I, I believe are, are more restricted to that Top 200 meters, but deal vertical migrations have been documented uh, down to 200, 800, and even 1400 meters, which counts as the deep sea. And it's all based off of the the sun cycle quite yeah.
3: impressive for a small creature that, you know, you'd really need a magnifying glass to, to see clearly.
13: Yeah, well, uh, so I, it's more of like a chain reaction. So the little guys will be more towards the surface and then the bigger ones that eat them will migrate with them and follow them. And then, and then the bigger guys who eat the bigger guys, it's like a chain reaction. And everyone's and,
3: going up and down every day. And
13: everyone's going up and down and everybody's dying and everyone's pooping. And so all that death and poop just rains down on the deeper parts of the deeper layers of the ocean. And that's what everyone else eats. So they're going to move up and down with all the poop and death and stuff that's coming down, because uh, that's how they get the things they need to survive.
3: And ultimately, is is there a rainfall that lands on the ocean floor? Because if you've got lots of stuff at the surface capturing energy, because you've got plants up there, you've got animals up there, they're capturing energy from the sun, they're capturing carbon from, from the air in the form of carbon dioxide. Some of them are not going to get eaten. Are, are some of them going to land on the seafloor and effectively carry carbon down
13: yeah yeah so that's how that's how this biological pump of carbon works is that that a carbon-based organism near the surface dies and then just starts to slowly rain down on the animals beneath it and then somebody swims by and goes oh that's delicious thank you
3: so it's actually a very important sort of drawdown mechanism for mm-hmm. planting carbon seafloorwards yes and and if we disturb that yeah. We could have trouble.
13: Yeah, well, at least the animals in the deep sea will have trouble.
3: <laughs> yeah. Now, you mentioned that some of these animals can use their visual system to spot these Mm -hmm. things going up and down and follow them how developed are their visual systems then and what are they looking for what can they see
13: oh they're fantastic so i mean we're talking baby crustaceans other types of crustaceans that are fully adults and just swim around in the open ocean we're talking larval fish full-grown fish sharks dolphins whales i mean everything is swimming around looking for something to eat all the time so you've got the full spectrum of kind of eye types so um, you've got eyes that are just simple little eye spots that can detect a shadow versus not a shadow all the way up to a great resolution eye that's more like ours, designed like a camera that can really see something in great detail.
3: Um, I often wonder when when I look at something like a shrimp or a crab and it's mm -hmm. got its little eyes on on stalks or whatever (laughs) how good is its vision?
13: Well, generally their resolution is a bit poor. They have what's called a compound eye. So it's an eye that is made up of a whole bunch of little units. Imagine a bouquet of straws, and each straw is almost like a little camera itself where it's got a lens on the end and then a piece of film at the base. And so it's sampling each point in space like a pixel. So each one of those pixels get assembled into a picture, and it's just going to be a low-resolution image. Uh, So there's not going to be a lot of pixels or as many as you would have in a camera type eye like ours that has much, much smaller cells in it. So you can pack a lot more pixels into it. But
3: obviously good enough that it can find something to eat and avoid being eaten.
13: Yeah, exactly. So you you don't need a lot of resolution in order to uh, see something coming at you that you don't want coming at you or see something that you want to pursue.
3: Who would have thought that there was commuting on such a big scale? And I thought I had it hard. Thank you very much, Kate Feller, who's with us during the programme. This is the Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, we'll be listening to the sounds of the sea, although not through a seashell, and we'll also meet the deadly sea creature, which is even smaller than the end of your finger. Before that, though, to some of the largest animals in the ocean, and that's whales. These are marine mammals, and in the past, many of their species were hunted for their oil, almost to the point of extinction in some cases, to extinction. But thanks to international treaties observed by many countries, whale numbers have since begun to recover. But we still know relatively little about them, and it's hard to conserve a species that you understand only very poorly. At the same time, you don't want to distress or disturb an animal in an attempt to study it. So researchers at Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia, have set up a programme to monitor whales using drones. These are used to capture samples of exhaled air that can then be analysed to produce a chemical snapshot of the animal's biochemistry. This is what's called its phenome. Garth maker.
14: The phenome is effectively the entire biochemistry of an organism as reflected by the interaction between their genes and the environment. In many respects it's the the closest representation of the final physiological state of an individual, say a human or, or another organism. And so it's reflective of everything that is potentially coded within the genes and then all of the other influences that then lead to that final state of the organism. And what sorts of things do you measure and what sorts of samples do you have to collect to do that? So the key focus is on urine samples and blood samples, but there are other sample types that can also be analysed. And in in these analyses, we're looking for all the small molecules, so the carbohydrates like the sugars, fats, proteins, amino acids specifically as well, and then a lot of other smaller molecules, and of course anything that may be not... Normally found within the organism, so maybe drug molecules or molecules that are present from food
3: or environmental exposures as well. So rather than looking for just one chemical, what you're saying is you look at a whole spectrum of different chemicals and you're looking at the levels of each of them relative to each other and it's like a, a fingerprint, a chemical fingerprint that you can then say well we know this person has disease or condition X and when we see that condition we see this sort of chemical fingerprint.
14: That's exactly right. And it's, it's really taking the old-fashioned clinical biochemistry, which would maybe measure a single molecule or a couple of molecules, and saying, well, let's measure as much as we can, many thousands of these molecules in a single analysis, and see how that entire fingerprint changes with, as you say, with diseases or maybe with um, specific exposures to treatments or other chemicals as well. What sorts of gadgetry
3: or you know, expensive equipment do you need to make those measurements?
14: So this is primarily achieved through uh, a combination of two technologies, liquid chromatography which separates the molecules on the basis of their chemistry and then mass spectrometry which actually analyses the molecules and gives us a measurement of their specific mass that allows us to identify them and figure out what they are. And
3: you can do this fast enough to actually make this a practical
14: diagnostic tool? That's the, uh, the goal of uh, the phenomics concept, is to actually take these analyses, which have typically been undertaken in a relatively slow fashion, and now make them high throughput so that we can do them in a setting that is relevant to clinical diagnosis. Just
3: human medicine, or are there other things you could do with it?
14: Absolutely. It can be applied to any biological system. The driver has certainly been medicine, but there are many other applications, including uh, agricultural settings and also in, in wildlife biology as well. Like what? So, an investigation we're undertaking at the moment is to look at the, uh, the breath that is exhaled by uh, whales and dolphins. Now, they breath... have, have a blowhole. <laughs> okay, so the blow that is uh, <laughs> provided by these animals. Um, breath analysis has been undertaken in humans for some time and is actually growing in, um, in popularity as a means of diagnosis because it's really easy to collect. And so that thinking has now led to a few studies which have started to look at whether we can do this in the large aquatic mammals. It's very difficult to sample from these organisms, it's difficult to get close to them safely, many of them are threatened or endangered species so we don't wish to interfere with them in their natural environment. So ideally we'd like a way to sample from these organisms that is non-invasive and one of the ways that we can potentially do that is to sample the blow that is exhaled by them as they
3: surface. This sounds very impractical. What are you going to do, chase a whale down? And then every time it breathes out, you you just try and catch some of the breath?
14: It's a very good question. With things like dolphins, which are often found close to the shore, there are dolphin populations around um, Perth that are used to interacting with humans. So we can do that using basically a a pole with a a collection device at the end. For whales, um, the approach is actually to use drones. So the drones fly over the whales as they are um, approaching the surface and then hover over the animal once it then blows out its breath that can then be sampled and then brought back to uh, researchers on a boat. And what chemicals are in the breath that you can look at then? Hormones, so things like cortisol, which can be used to examine the stress levels of the, of the animal. And at the same time, some of the hormones associated with pregnancy, things like progesterone, may be able to determine the pregnancy status of the animal without having to conduct more invasive measurements.
3: And there's enough of those things in trace
14: amounts in the breath for you to see that it's very much a a work in progress but it seems from from the literature the studies that have been undertaken so far that these analyses are actually practical from breath analysis
3: and you presumably are not just starting straight out on the ocean with a, a team of drones how are you sort of scaling this or how are you doing the preliminary studies so we're undertaking some, some lab-based simulations
14: at the moment to make sure that the technology is up to the task. Then we'll move on to dolphins they're more easily interacted with and they're used to humans being around them so we'll undertake some, some preliminary work with dolphins and then if that all goes to plan then uh, some of our colleagues from the Murdoch University Cetacean Research uh, Unit will actually collect these samples for us using their drone systems. How much breath do you need? It's been suggested that maybe a single breath from one of these animals or potentially up to three or even five breaths, but that's the maximum we would try to collect from from a single animal so we don't uh, unnecessarily bother them by flying a drone over them for extended periods of time. So we're we're thinking it's probably going to give us around maybe 0.1 mil of, of actual exhaled breath condensate from which we can sample.
3: Absolutely incredible. Garth Maker there from Murdoch University and the Australian National Phenome Centre. Are you jealous of Garth's drone?
13: A little bit. Could, I've like always to wanted to use a drone in an experiment. I have a dream of one day building one of those uh, DIY ROVs or underwater drones. You could make an drones.
3: underwater equivalent of a drone, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And do it that way. And then kits. you could sample the water column and, and see some of, those, some of that poop raining down. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, the next item is all about acoustics. So take a listen to this. Yep, you probably thought that that was someone who'd consumed too much from the fibre in the cereal packet. But it is in fact the sound of a blue whale. And you've probably not heard it quite like that before. Philippe Blondel actually works on marine acoustics, including sounds like that. He's from the University of Bath. Philippe, welcome to the programme. So what actually is the world of underwater acoustics all about?
15: The world of underwater acoustics is listening to the sounds in the oceans. And even if Jacques Cousteau called it the world of silence, it's actually very noisy. It's uh, hissing, cracking, sizzling, and we can hear the sounds from natural processes, the wind, the waves, the rain or the storms above. We can hear the sounds of the animals around, for example, this whale, but the dolphins we heard about earlier. All these animals make their own noise. And then there is the noise we create with ships passing by, Or with our own tools, for example, sonars, where we send pings in the oceans and listen to the echoes, like bats do, to image the environment underwater.
3: I think this is the discrimination is active versus passive sound, isn't it? There are sounds we can make and that's active acoustics as passive acoustics where we're just eavesdropping on what nature's already providing for us.
15: Exactly. Active acoustics or sonar is like the sonar from bats or dolphins. We create our own source of sound, like a loudspeaker, send the sound, get the echoes. How long it takes to come back tells us how far the target is. And how the echo is changed by the target tells us what kind of target it is.
3: Why does a field like yours exist, though? What can we actually learn about the underwater world by listening to it?
15: We can learn a lot with uh, very small tools. Uh, With passive acoustics, for example, we can detect sounds even 1,500 kilometres away. The oceans are a very big place. And we know very little of them. One of the speakers mentioned around 5%. So we know more about our own planet than other planets like Venus.
3: You sent me a sound earlier, and you've described this as coming from a glacier. I'll just play that.
15: Tell us what that was. This starts with a hiss, which is the background noise of icebergs in the sea, and they're melting, so they're breaking into smaller parts. The small bubbles of air inside create small pops, like an ice cube in a glass. And then the big noise, the big bang, is part of a glacier falling off, which is a natural process that is becoming larger now with climate change. And these glaciers add a lot of fresh water, and we have big blocks of uh, several tens of tons falling into the ocean.
3: So does this mean... Given that you've identified that almost sonic fingerprint for that process happening, that by listening for those sounds underwater, you have some idea of how often they're happening and on what sort of scale, and therefore you have a rate at which glaciers might be melting.
15: Yes, and we can do that without being there in person, because the polar environments are very dangerous and challenging. And we can put instruments on the seabed for years at a time, and gather information not only from this glacier, but all the other glaciers around. At the same time, as we listen to the whales, we listen to the human footprints or acoustic footprints. So we have a complete view of what's happening under the oceans in what is hidden to us usually.
3: Here's another clip you sent me. That one sounds quite different and it has a regularity to it. I'd say that's man-made.
15: Definitely, spot on. This is a ship and we can hear the propeller of a ship going like that and creating this noise. The shipping industry is well aware of this problem so they're trying to reduce their acoustic footprints but these sounds can travel over very large distances up to hundreds of kilometres away.
3: And what impact, just very briefly, could they have on animals that are exposed to them because they've got to live with this noise going on?
15: It's like living next to a motorway. Uh, When there is a lot of traffic, you have to shout very loud to be heard by others. Sometimes you cannot sleep at night. If you're relying not on sight but on sound to find your prey, that's going to affect how easily you can eat and live around these places.
3: So keeping an eye on it and an ear on it Must be very important, Philippe. Thank you very much. That's Philippe Blondell from the University of Bath. Thank you to our other guests this week, Michael Cuncliffe and Garth Maker. And thank you, of course, to Kate, who's been with me here in the studio. Now we have another sea creature set to take over our Question of the Week slot this week for Critter of the Week. This week, Izzy Clark has very carefully been investigating the deadly Irukandji jellyfish.
4: Name, Irukandji jellyfish. Phylum, Nedaria, Location. These jellyfish exist in oceans across the world. Special abilities. The power of invisibility with a silent but deadly sting. Lisa Ann Gershwin, director of the Australian Marine Stinger Advisory Services, makes the case for this week's Critter of the Week.
2: You may see the most as pathetic globules of white washed up on the beach, but jellyfish pack a punch. One that you really don't want to mess with is the Irukhenji jellyfish. These jellies cause a debilitating illness known as Irakenji syndrome, named after an Australian Aboriginal tribe. Imagine a tiny, thimble-shaped creature, smaller than a miniature marshmallow and invisible in water. In life, it has four tentacles as fine as cobwebs and a hundred times its body length. Cute factor? Check. Homegrown invisibility cloak? check but don't be fooled there's a catch its sting is worse than anything Hollywood has dared to imagine make no mistake this tiny beast is a killer the sting itself is often painless and leaves no mark half of the victims don't even know they've been stung the Irukandji can fire their stingers into their victim and unlike most jellyfish you'll also find stingers on the Irukandji's bell After about half an hour, severe lower back pain begins, with patients often describing it as feeling like an electric drill drilling into the back. Within minutes, relentless nausea and vomiting begin and can persist for 12 hours. A short time later, the rest of the syndrome kicks in, including difficulty breathing, sweating, full-body cramps and spasms, restless legs, and a feeling of impending doom. And if you think that sounds bad, get a load of this. Some species also cause severe hypertension or high blood pressure, severe enough to hemorrhage the brain or cause heart failure. There's no antivenom, but intriguingly, intravenous magnesium stops the whole syndrome in its tracks in many cases. So it's
4: tiny, invisible and extremely venomous. Um,
2: where can I avoid... This cool but cruel critter. Even though most people have never heard of Irukandji syndrome, species that cause it are found in all the world's oceans, from Hawaii to Boston to the Caribbean, from Southeast Asia to the South Pacific Islands. So why do I think Irukandjis are the best critters? Because anything so small, so invisible, so mysterious and so dangerous certainly gets my respect.
4: There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the ever-so-small and oh-so-dangerous Irukandji jellyfish.
3: And if you would like to nominate a sea critter for us to consider, you can email chris at scientist.com, find us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists. That is it for this week. Thank you to Katie Haler who put the programme together and do join us again next time when we journey down to see the bottom of some of the deepest oceans on Earth. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. Until next time, goodbye.
14: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.